Good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills. I'm glad you've tuned in this morning. This is our eighth week meeting all over Northern Virginia as a church distributed. When this pandemic first started, how many of us thought we'd still be here after eight weeks? I'm guessing not many. However, here we are, and to be honest, we're blessed to live in a time like this when we have the technology that enables us to meet this way. We've tried our best to make this uh, worship service both helpful and hopeful, and we pray that you'll use it, uh, that God will use it in your life uh, to build you up in the faith and to draw you closer to Him. So before I start, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Listen carefully as I read our scripture passage for today. Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, a week or so ago, we had a fun contest on our Facebook group, trying to guess what the pastor says every Sunday. And most of you guessed the opening line of this prayer. And what I thought you would guess was the closing line of this prayer, so I guess you'll just have to listen to the whole thing. So please join me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son Jesus. And we ask you this morning to give us the grace to hear and believe these hard words. We live in a time where vows are temporary, promises are easily broken, and commitment is anything but. So we find it hard to believe when it comes to marriage, because marriage itself is hard work and too often set aside. We need Jesus. We need to hear his words of both grace and truth. We need the faith, hope, and love that comes from seeing the risen Savior. So help us to see Jesus in your word this morning. Help us to have renewed faith. Help us to have restored hope. And help us to reset our love this morning. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. In Mark 10, verse 7, right in the middle of our passage this morning, Jesus quotes Genesis. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Which begs the question, why would a man leave his father and mother? 
Now, truth be told, I know some men who have it pretty good living with their parents. They're single, they're cared for, somebody does their laundry, they don't have to pay room and board. They have life by the tail, and then they throw it all away. What do they do? They decide to leave their parents, giving up all that security, and get married, picking up all the expense of having a wife and a home of their own. Why on earth would they do that? Because, Jesus says, verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. A divinely created male felt a response to a divinely created female. And if it's right, it's also a divinely created response. And for that reason, the man chooses to leave his old life and to move into a new life. But notice the key to this. He chooses to leave. Now, to be fair, this scenario particularly relates to the society in which Jesus was living and to which he was addressing his remarks. In those days, a man left his family to move into the area in which his wife lived for a very simple reason. If anything should happen to him, for example, if he should suffer an untimely death, then her father and brothers would care for her. She had no welfare. There was no insurance. Her father and brothers were her insurance. So even though the situation is a lot different now, this matter of choice still applies. One of the reasons marriages get into difficulty is this. People choose to get married. They choose to leave the single life to get involved in a new married life. And accepting responsibility, they say they'll leave their old life. But then they don't. Although they say they're ready and willing to move into this new life, they look back. They lack commitment because they don't know what this new relationship involves. And marriages fall into all kinds of problems because of this. Now let me illustrate from a uh, premarital counseling experience, not one of mine. I generally don't share those. Um, this comes from the pastor and author Stuart Briscoe. And he writes, One very cold night in November, a young couple with whom I'd met for premarital counseling came to my house for a last-minute appointment. As they came in the door, the uh, blast of cold air outside seemed warm compared to the atmosphere between them. Something was wrong. Tactful that I am, I decided to be diplomatic, so I said, I see you had a fight on the way over. And after several denials, they finally admitted it. This is what happened. For many years, this young man had gone deer hunting. I said, don't tell me. Your wedding day is the opening day of deer season. And then she looked at me and said, right. And you know what he said? Yes, I know what he said. He said, you're going to spend your honeymoon deer hunting. Yes, can you believe that? I glanced at him and he looked away and then said, well, I go to the symphony with her, don't I? This is a problem. I had to do something to diffuse the situation, so I said to him, I think we have a problem. As I understand it, you feel that your young bride should go sit up in northern Wisconsin, <coughs> freezing and shooting deer as part of your honeymoon. She interrupted, I know, right? And you feel that because you've gone to the symphony with her, 
she should go along with this. He nodded yes. We've got to compromise, haven't we? So I turned to her and said, why don't you go with him and take all your music of Beethoven and Brahms and Bach and Mozart and just play them up there in the woods? And then I looked at him. How about you take your hunting rifle to the symphony? See if you can bag yourself a cellist. By this time they were smiling a little bit and we could begin to address the problem. The solution to their problem was not a compromise. Taking Beethoven deer hunting is as ridiculous as hunting at the symphony. That kind of compromise simply doesn't work. This was my counsel to them. To the best of my knowledge, you don't have to get married. Why are you choosing to get married? And looking at the man, I said, if hunting is more important to you than marriage and your wife, why do you need a wife? Stick with deer. The simple fact of the matter is this. If you're going to enter into a new relationship, it ought to be because you've chosen that new relationship over the old one. Happy to report that he says the young man recognized how unfair he was being and the couple worked out their differences. Even though they didn't go deer hunting on their honeymoon, they did go later on. And I'm pretty sure he didn't shoot any cellists. Now that's a humorous introduction to a serious topic. It's a light intro to a heavy subject. And that's because this issue of divorce and remarriage poses some significant challenges. There are few challenges that make preaching on divorce and remarriage especially difficult. One challenge is there are so many legitimate approaches that one can take with a sermon. I could make the sermon a warning. Marriage is sacred. Remember your vows. Jesus never encouraged divorce. Don't do it. And I could preach that way because the weight of the New Testament falls on the side of warning against divorce. But I could also use the sermon to talk about God's compassion for those who've been hurt in marriage, for those who've been left behind in marriage, or those who've been sinned against in marriage. Or I could take the sermon in a completely different direction, encourage those who have sinned in divorce or sinned in remarriage to repent and receive God's merciful forgiveness. I could take a theological approach, try to explain the acceptable grounds for divorce and remarriage, asking questions like, are there any justifiable reasons for divorce? If so, what are they? And if you can get divorced under certain circumstances, what about remarriage? And I wish I had time to go really deep, both pastorally and theologically in all these ways, but I just can't fit it all into one sermon. That's the first challenge. The next challenge in preaching on this topic is there are so many unique scenarios that don't lend themselves to easy answers. Many of you will listen to this sermon, not just for theological information, but you'll be listening to hear if I think that God thinks your divorce was acceptable, or whether your parents' remarriage was appropriate, or whether you're free to remarry now that you're divorced. There are so many intricate, specific situations, I can't possibly speak to all of them. These situations require tremendous wisdom 
because it's not always clear what the correct counsel should be. For example, a wife commits adultery. She's repentant and wants to save the marriage. The husband knows he must forgive, but he wants to file for divorce. Would you grant him that right? Does it make any difference if the unfaithfulness was frequent? A wife gets a divorce because of marital unfaithfulness. You've determined she has grounds for that divorce. Is she free to remarry? What if the husband repents? Is he free to remarry or only to her? And if she gets remarried, does that change his obligation? Or how about a non-Christian couple gets a divorce? Later, he becomes a Christian and realizes that the divorce was wrong. Is he obligated to try to win back his non-Christian ex-wife? What if he tries and she has no interest? Is he free to remarry? Or a remarried couple comes to realize that both their divorce and remarriage was sinful. Are they committing adultery by staying, remar staying married? And if they stay married, what should they do to make things right? Can they be members in the church? Can they be leaders in the church? Or last example, both husband and wife commit adultery. They both have grounds for divorce. They're both the guilty party. Would you allow a divorce? Two years later, they're sincerely repentant. Should they remarry each other? Could they remarry someone else? You see, there's as many scenarios as there are couples in the world. How do we know what's right in each situation, especially when so many of these scenarios have no specific parallel in Scripture? The simple thing, and sadly what many churches do, is to just turn a blind eye to divorce. Just pretend it doesn't happen. Don't ask about it. Don't bring it up. Don't say anything during the membership interview. The hard thing is to take a few biblical principles about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and then try to apply them prayerfully and wisely to a thousand different situations. So that's the challenge of taking on this text. It's way too big a topic to cover in one sermon, and there's so many different personal situations I can't cover all of them. Now this subject is addressed repeatedly in the Old Testament. Jesus himself addresses divorce and remarriage four times in the Gospels, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Luke 16, and here in Mark 10. The Apostle Paul addresses it at length in 1 Corinthians 7. And to have a thorough understanding of divorce and remarriage, you really need to look at the whole counsel of God and what the entire Bible has to say. Now, we don't have time to do that this morning. So let me recommend a relatively new book that does do that. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage by Jim Neuheiser. He teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and is the director of their counseling program. It's accessible, thorough, biblical, and I can't recommend it too highly. So let's get to our text, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to start with a question of testing. A question of testing. If you're following along in the sermon outline, that's your first blank. Verses 1 and 2. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Now, apparently, the issue of divorce was a hot topic in Jesus' day, too. And there's some evidence to suggest that divorce was at epidemic proportions in that time as it is in our own. Divorce was a significant problem. And some of you will have heard the name of at least one divorced Pharisee. And this tells you that divorce was not just a problem amongst common folk, but it was also a problem amongst the ancient clergy in Jesus' day. The rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees. Have you ever heard the name Josephus? Famous ancient writer. He wrote the Antiquities. He wrote the Jewish War. He was a divorced Pharisee. So there's a real problem of divorce among the clergy of Israel. And there were great differences among these clergy as to what biblical views of marriage, divorce, and remarriage were. You might say it was just as controversial an issue then as it is now. So the Pharisees take the opportunity to force Jesus to make his views public, as much as we might try to do with a politician today. Ask hard questions, pin them down, so we can come back and use that against him later. One more thing you need to keep in mind before we look at this passage. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's the parallel passage in Matthew 19 says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And what I want you to keep in mind is the Pharisees asking this question couldn't have cared less about the marriages involved. They couldn't care less about your marriage. Their one and only goal is to trap Jesus. Their desire is to get him involved in a controversy which would cause his reputation to suffer, no matter what answer he gave. And so they had no concern for your soul. Whereas throughout this passage, Jesus shows every concern for your soul. So with that in mind, the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is that Jesus is beginning his ministry in the border region of Judah, just on the other side of the Jordan. And what we learn from that brief, seemingly insignificant detail is that Jesus is the one who cares about people. And that's important in light of the difficult things he's about to say in a few moments. Jesus is going to have a view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage which is narrower than the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a broader view for the grounds of marriage, or for grounds for divorce. And so Jesus is going to say some things that are unpopular. And that's important, because before we see what Jesus says, it's important to see that he's the one who actually cares about people. It's not the Pharisees who care, it's Jesus who's investing himself in the lives of people. But notice where he's ministering. He's in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. He's in the territory of Herod Antipas, who had imprisoned and then executed John the Baptist, who had the nerve to say that Herod shouldn't have divorced his first wife and then married Herodias, who in turn divorced Herod's brother Philip to make the second marriage possible. The Pharisees knew that if they asked this question, Jesus is likely to take a strict line, and that unguarded word from him, suitably reported back to Herod, just might do the trick. And they'd be able to sit back and watch Herod do their dirty work for him. So let me ask you, are the Pharisees out there caring for these people? No. They're out there to trap Jesus. 
Jesus is out there ministering to people. He's teaching them. He's healing them. They're following him. He's the one who's invested in the lives of people. And although he's single, Jesus shows greater understanding of marriage than the Pharisees. Remember, to be a Pharisee, you had to be married. And yet Jesus shows a greater sensitivity to God's statements about marriage in the book of Genesis than the Pharisees do. Jesus is the practical one. But Jesus also knows that truth, even when it's uncomfortable to hear, makes our lives better. And even if it hurts to hear it, it always pays eternal dividends. And so he sets forth his teaching on divorce in the context of this hostile question asked by the Pharisees. Now, it's also important to know the Pharisees are somewhat lax on the issue of divorce. That sounds surprising because we think of the Pharisees as legalists who dot every I and cross every T when it comes to the law. And so you may wonder, what in the world are they doing with this lax view of divorce? Well, their legalism plays into that because they paid a lot of attention to one passage in Deuteronomy 24 from which they drew their teaching on divorce. And they parsed it very carefully. But they overlooked the fundamental teaching on marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And does that not fit with the pattern that Jesus accuses them of? They strain at a gnat and then swallow a camel. They make a great deal about the lesser things of the law while ignoring the weightier matters of the law on these issues of divorce and remarriage. So the first thing we have to see is this is a test. It's not just a question for them to find out more. It's a test. It's a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. And so Jesus answers their question of testing with a question of law. Question of law. Look at verse 3, and then we'll look at verses 6 through 9. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Jumping to verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, to really understand this passage, we have to focus on the main point that Jesus makes. And simply put, that's before you get to the subject of divorce, you have to know what God meant for marriage in the first place. And then and only then can you go on and speak about divorce. So the setting is that the Pharisees come to Jesus with this trick question in verse 2. Now why do I say it's a trick question? It looks straightforward enough. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But it's a trick question because they don't actually care about the answer they want one of several things to happen. Either they want Jesus to get into a theological debate, because this is actually a theological debate that the Pharisees themselves were having, and they were divided on this question of what qualified as legitimate grounds for divorce. There were two camps. Those who followed Rabbi Shammai said that divorce was only legitimate in the case of adultery. They held what was called the strict view. And those who followed Rabbi Hillel said that divorce could occur for any reason at all. In fact, one rabbi said a man could divorce his wife if she burned the toast. So any cause at all is grounds for divorce. 
So that's the first thing. There are two camps here. And each wants to see how Jesus is going to answer. But notice the wording of the question itself. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why is it phrased that way? Well, historically, men are usually the initiators in divorce. And in ancient Israel, a man could get a divorce very easily. Back then, a man didn't even have to see a judge to get a divorce. All he had to do was have two witnesses and write a bill of divorce, and he's out of there. Now, if a woman wanted to get a divorce, she had to go before a judge. There had to be a trial, and she had to show cause. So there's a real sense in which Jesus is protecting the rights of married women with what he says in this passage. In Jesus' day, there's a problem with lax divorce, just like in our day. It's easier to get out of marriage than it is to get in one. And Jesus is speaking precisely to that situation, so often precipitated by a man. Now, the Pharisees base their opinions in Deuteronomy 24, and they very carefully misread Moses to argue that he was commanding broad grounds for divorce. And in response to their question, Jesus takes them back to Genesis 1 and 2 and says, look, what does God institute marriage for? He instituted marriage in order to present oneness between a man and a woman who would leave their parents and cleave to one another. And so he quotes from Genesis. And then he adds, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says marriage promotes oneness and therefore we're never to break up an institution lightly which is designed to promote oneness. We're never to take that lightly. Basically, he tells the Pharisees, shame on you. You're ignoring what Moses taught in Genesis. Now, the Pharisees thought that either he was going to get trapped in the theological debate or he was going to say something that they could report to Herod or he would oppose Moses by saying, you know, Moses was wrong when he said that in Deuteronomy. Of course, Jesus doesn't do those things. He tells the Pharisees, once again, your problem is not that you care too much about what Moses said, but it's that you don't care enough about what Moses said. Because you haven't carefully read the foundational statements in Genesis 1 and 2, which finally, after they challenge him with a test, Jesus challenges them back with the law. And then we get to the question of explanation. The question of explanation. Verses 4 and 5 and then 10 through 12. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And then starting at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees come at him with another challenge, verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus explains that Moses' statements gave permission to grant a divorce in certain circumstances, and he did it as a concession to the hardness of their hearts. But more importantly, in verses 10 through 12, he goes on to say that a violation of the marriage covenant is a violation of the seventh commandment. 
It's adultery. Now remember, the Pharisees are hard on immorality. They're hard on adultery. They're ready to execute people caught in adultery. But they let anybody who walk in the door get a divorce. And so Jesus is saying, let me tell you something, Pharisees. An unbiblical divorce and an unbiblical remarriage is tantamount to adultery. You guys who say you hate adultery are promoting adultery in Israel. He's using really harsh words against the Pharisees in order to get their attention. And so Jesus teaches the Pharisees that instead of asking the question, what will God let me get away with in the matter of divorce, they ought to be asking the question, what does God desire for us in marriage? And instead of asking, what do I get out of marriage? We ought to be asking, how can this marriage be good for my spouse, good for my children, good for my grandchildren, good for my church, good for my community, and good for the kingdom of God? The Pharisees aren't asking, what does God intend marriage to be? They're not even asking, how can we help hurting people and broken relationships stay together? They're asking a very technical question. When can I get out of this commitment that I made before God? That's what they're asking. And it's Jesus that cares for us and wants the best for us. It's Jesus who comes back and says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, what does God intend for marriage to be? And Jesus' words completely reshape the debate. And they ask us to think about what we're doing when we commit to one another in marriage. When we make these vows, it isn't just some ritual that we go through that's of no real significance. We're making vows before God and man. And I hope that for the rest of this year, and certainly this strange season that we're in of being at home, that everyone will devote themselves to strengthen the family life and not just your family life, but the family life of our congregation. If you've gone through a divorce, and I know we have a number of people who have, you have an opportunity to minister to struggling marriages, to be able to say, let me tell you what I had to go through. Let me encourage you in overcoming these difficulties and staying together. Perhaps right now you're in a struggling marriage and you need to reach out to someone who's been through this. There are people in this congregation who've struggled in marriage and who've been through the pain of divorce. And most of them are willing to say, yes, I've been there and I'm willing to help. Perhaps you're in an irreparable situation, a situation where the marriage has been so grossly broken that the opportunity for reconciliation is no longer there. You still need to gather around and say, it's not my lack of respect for marriage, that I'm doing this, but just the opposite. It's my esteem for marriage that leads me to say, this relationship must end because of the infidelity that's occurred. Whatever your case is, we all need to devote ourselves to upholding the status of marriage. It's not just a foundation for our nation. It's a foundation of this congregation. We all have a vested interest in helping one another in our marriages. Whether we're single, whether we're divorced, whether we're married happily or not, all of us have a vested interest in helping one another in this area. So let me briefly address three groups of people who by this time are probably asking, what about us? So to the married, let me say, stay married. Guard your marriage. 
Don't think you're above falling. Don't think you're above temptation. Pray for each other. Take walks together. Get away from the kids to be together. There's few things in life more precious than your marriage. Don't take it for granted. And if you're contemplating divorce, please talk to someone. Don't give up. Even if you have biblical grounds for divorce, consider what glory it might be to God to work patiently towards reconciliation. And if you don't have biblical grounds, consider what offense it will be to God to break the promises that you made in his name. Consider the harm to your children. Stay married. Now, to those who are divorced and single, if you have grounds for divorce, the leaders of this church want to do everything we can to make sure no one looks down on you. If you've been sinned against, we don't want to treat you as the sinner. We don't want you to run from the church, but to find grace and fellowship and welcome here. If you're divorced and you shouldn't be, can you find hope in your heart that God might be able to reconcile you and your spouse? It would be a great trophy of his grace to bring you two back together. And that's happened in this church. And if that doesn't happen, don't get remarried right away. Wait, don't get remarried until you're biblically free to get remarried. Don't think, well, I can just repent later. You never know. The next time you blatantly sin may be the time the Lord gives you over to the hardness of your heart. And to those who have been sinfully divorced, to those whose sin caused the divorce, and to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be. I have one thing to say to you. Run to the cross. It's not a light thing to tear asunder what God has joined together. It is no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light, and it is not small, and divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. But the contrition must be real, the admission of guilt must be honest, the repentance must be earnest. A broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord will not despise. So run to God, plead with God, know his adopting love, experience again his justifying grace. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And that promise is for you too. Now, I know I didn't cover all the situations and all the scenarios for divorce and remarriage. And so I'm going to attach a simple list of biblical principles for divorce and remarriage, be at the end of the sermon outline, at the end of the uh, study guide, uh, be at the end of the manuscript. that will give you some more concrete guidance with a couple of suggestions. And I haven't taken the time to cover all that in great detail because I don't want to miss what I consider to be the real question. The real question. You see, the world doesn't understand the biblical view of marriage because the world doesn't understand the commitment of Christ. The world doesn't understand that God deeply cares about marriage and divorce. The world will try to convince you that the Christian views on Marriage and divorce are too narrow and too outdated for today's world. I don't like what Christianity has to say about this area of my life. But if a doctor prescribes you an unpleasant tasting medicine, what do you do? If you're truly sick, you take it. And it's just as wrong-headed to taste test Christianity as it is to taste test medicine. 
Christianity will not allow itself to be evaluated solely on its sexual ethics. And that's because the real question is, is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? Is he who he said he is? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Has he really died for you because you're a sinner? If he is and he has, then who cares what he asks you to do or not do? You should do it. In a sense, the gospel doesn't let you talk about anything else first. It says, I won't talk to you about marriage or divorce or sexuality or gender roles or suffering or anything else until you determine what you will do with him. Who he is determines everything else. Some may object, well, Christianity still has this outdated view of marriage and divorce. Really? The Christian view of marriage is enormously lofty. The Bible says that marriage points to the relationship we have with Christ. The Bible says that God made marriage so important because it's capable of bringing so much glory and so much joy into your life that only two people fully committed to one another for a lifetime can receive it. No higher view is possible. It's not by coincidence that his chosen imagery to characterize his relationship with his people is the covenant of marriage. So hopefully by now, you've learned that lasting marriages are marriages that put Jesus first. Perhaps we should pray that we do just that. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. This morning we ask you to renew our faith and restore our hope and reset our love. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Our Father in heaven, these are solemn issues that we've dealt with today. You know our hearts. You know our marriages. You know the marriages that are broken. You know the marriages that are in trouble. You know the husbands and wives who are not speaking to each other. You know the husbands and wives who are not relating to each other as husband and wife. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here, who sees this, who's struggling with sin, who's struggling with the relationships, who's struggling with their marriage, who's struggling with their past, bring them the grace of your forgiveness and the mercy of your redemption. And if need be, bring them to repentance and then hold them with a love that will not let them go. For the sake of your kingdom, amen. Amen.